have a good show. <laughs> Will you Break leave a leg. us? I do leave you. Why you just, I don't know. I always hear your voice in the background. <laughs> <laughs> just here at the beginning. This yeah, is but excellent. he magically edits it such that he shows up this throughout shows at the that, end, this so is, you think he's here the phenomenal. whole time. How <laughs> oh, the sausage made. Okay. Hello, Herman. Hi, Chris. How's it going? Uh, it's going well. Thank you. I'm glad to have you here on the Bike Shed. So for those of you who might have missed some of the past few episodes, we've had a uh, changing of the guard here. Derek and Sean have respectively moved on. They'll certainly, I think, still make appearances from time to time. But for now, I'm going to be the uh, ongoing host of the Bike Shed. And today I'm joined by special guest star, Herman. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Chris. Appreciate that. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So, Herman, you are a developer here in the Boston office, or as of uh, until very recently, you were a developer here in the Boston office, and now you've sort of gone adrift and currently working remote and finishing up a client rotation. But I figured it would be interesting to start with just a little bit of a conversation about that yeah. and your world of shifting to remote. So how's that been? How, how have you yeah. experienced that? It's a really interesting transition. I think a lot of people do it. Well, I mean, there's many reasons why doing it. Not, no commute is nice, I will mm. admit that. But I think a lot of people do it because of family reasons, they mm. want to be near family. I love coming into the office. Yep. That's been something that I absolutely enjoyed while I was here in Boston. But being remote, I can understand the family aspect. Mm -hmm. So I have a one-and-a-half-year-old at home, and you know, being able to take lunch and play with her in the yep. kiddie pool is like amazing. So, yeah, I um, think you and I were pairing Friday, I think this was last Friday, and in the background was your wife and child, and your child <laughs> was making noises, and I think it was a perfect sort of microcosm of the benefits and some of the potential drawbacks of working remote. Absolutely. Uh, the office tends to not have children crying in the background <laughs> most of the time. It does happen, but yeah. uh, but it really was like this perfect little picture, but I can imagine how that would also be spectacular. So Yeah, yeah. And, and definitely the remote setup is very important, so mm -hmm. prior to going remote I was trying to read up on how to do it correctly mm -hmm. because there's like working from home is not remote work like they're not necessarily the same so having a good setup and like that obviously requires a good computer a good, mm -hmm. good monitor a good chair good space like a room but I think it also means like having a quiet environment having mm -hmm. a place where you can be separated from things and I think that's where I'm still tweaking yep. and figure those things out we're sort of we've also bought a house when we moved to Philly it looked very nice in the background of all the, the video pairing sessions <laughs> Thank we've you. had. Thank you. Yeah, we're very happy with it. But the idea is to create a really good space for remote work because yep. I want to I wanna give it a good shot. So stuff like that I think I, I still need to improve. But the tools nowadays are pretty good for remote work. So mm -hmm. that's – I don't know if that's something I want to – dive into but it's actually it i mean at a minimum i want to describe my experience of working in a slack call that we were using and you just kept using the magical highlighter <laughs> to highlight things on the screen <laughs> you were just so adept at that it was really spectacular um, but I, I will say like i both feel the like why haven't we solved video chat as a problem like can you hear me now oh weird i have to open it in safari not chrome for hangouts which was always the most amazing one but weird things like that where it's like i really feel like we should have solved this by now and then to also have the magical other end of the experience where like Slack calls with shared cursor and like shared mouse and keyboard control seems a little bit like magic at this yeah. point. So, I mean, it's it's really impressive. It's not a I don't, I'm not sure how difficult of a technological thing it is to to solve, but it's pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. That being said, I have been using a lot of Teammate because yep. it just, you just can't beat that for 
for what I'm doing. So yeah, for anyone out there in the audience, teammate, if you're unfamiliar, is a separate build. I want to say a separate actual version of Tmux, which like is the terminal multiplayer. Yeah, I think so. And it spins up a server in the background, and then we'll actually share your session essentially over SSH connecting. Like if you and I are using a teammate session, then we're both essentially working within the same terminal context, which is good because we're both, we use the terminal natively. We're working in Vim in the terminal and the shell and Tmux as our, our primary environment. So that's very comfortable for us. It's also extremely low latency and, and just yeah. feels like we're both kind of working on our own machines, but it, we happen to be sharing a context. So teammate's great, but it also, people have to be comfortable in that environment. So yeah, I found sure. that like having the Slack call option as a fallback with the ability to share keyboard and all of that is spectacular. I will say though there's a really weird bug in it where I can't type a colon. Yep. Which like that's how you start commands in Vim, that's how you write symbols in Ruby. Like this turns out it comes up and you're like typing along and everything's going great and the magic of the internet is working and then you're like why why is this one <laughs> character not working for yes. me? It's a, I've been hearing a lot about the terrible colon that you can't type. Mhm. Otherwise, it's great. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, there must be some weird like terminal escape sequence or, or some reason that this is happening. That that one character is specially not available. But I have no idea what it would be because I've never heard of colon being a spe- or maybe it's shift or I don't know something. I f- but I feel like it's something new. I, I I hadn't heard any issues before, and this came up recently in the Slack channel, mm-hmm. and I've been hearing a lot of people having the exact same issue. So yep. I don't know. Yeah, you've sort of been collecting it now, bouncing around, pairing with with everybody. Yeah. I think the other thing that always seems important with remote work is that the team is bought into it. Yes. Like if you're the one remote employee, then it's really hard because a lot of conversations are happening in person and you're just missing out on that entire context. And so one of the, the adages that I've heard around supporting remote work is if one person's remote, everyone should behave like they're remote. Conversations should happen in Slack or in a shared space like Constable is our internal tool for more of like a discussion announcement sort of thing, but other tools like that and make sure everything gets pushed into some digital shared centralized sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And some of the articles that I read, that's part of how doing remote right, mm-hmm. right? Like there's companies who do it really well. I think we have a pretty good setup as is. ThoughtBot itself is, since we have so much communication on Slack and Constable and GitHub PRs and all this stuff, it's pretty good. But there's things that we could do even better, right? And I think there's companies that do that. Like, they might do a, a daily check-in mm. uh, online. And so, for example, I was pairing with Masha, one of our uh, developers in London, mm-hmm. and we both felt like we were remote because we were so far away, and all the clients were working from different places. And we were feeling a little isolated, so we started doing, like, a weekly check-in. Just a call, sort of like talk around the water cooler, right? Mm-hmm. So we just call and said hi and see yeah. how we were doing, like how the week was going. That that sort of proved really, really helpful. There's a tool that I've seen. I want to say it's uh, the company Buffer is the one that I've seen them talking about it, but it's a consistent presence video chat software. So each person on the team has their webcam set up and the webcam will just cycle through and take basically like a, a, <laughs> a grab once a minute. And then as anyone else on the team, you have this sort of Brady Bunch type picture where everyone's like video feed, you know, one still frame a second or one still frame a minute rather coming through. But you can see who's at their desk, who's not at their desk. And it also has the ability to like go in and click on someone. And that's you kind of like wave to them via the Internet and say like, hey, do you want to chat real quick? 
And so it tries to break down that barrier of starting one of those conversations and make it a little closer to the in-person experience of walking over to someone's desk and being like, hey, can, can I grab a minute? Um, it's still not so invasive that like you start a video chat or anything like that right. or that you're constantly streaming everything. It's interesting because it has <laughs> sort of an invasive privacy breaking sort of thing, but it's also very similar to like in the office, people can see me all the time. That's not weird. It's true. It's the <laughs> So it's, it's a only, weird middle ground. I don't the know. The only thing is I think I make weird faces when I uh, program, you know, if I'm concentrating. So I think if you look at me at random spots during the day, I'm sure you would you'd find some funny. As someone who's worked in the office with you, I can say, (laughs) no, I've never noticed that. Well, that's the thing. Uh, If you're in the office, most people aren't actually looking at your face all the time, right? So So true. (laughs) You mentioned doing some research. Were there any particular blog posts or things that stand out that we could share with the folks in the audience? Uh, I'll try to find them. I know a former ThoughtBotter put me to them. So I'll I'll find them. So yeah, I'll, I'll definitely share the link or track down whatever that software, the like video chat software I was describing was. Because again, I feel like I'm 50-50 on that one. I think it could be really <laughs> interesting. I also think it could be terrifying. But the other post that stands out to me in the world of working remote and how to design company policies around that is a post by Ryan Tomeko from, at the time, GitHub. I think he's moved on since. Uh, but in it, he actually identifies sort of core principles mm-hmm. around doing remote work well. Things like everything should be asynchronous by default. It should be URL addressable so that people can reference content later and say like, oh, here's the company announcement that happened. Here's the URL to go find that. And a couple of other things like that. But it's a good, like very structured and core recommendation sort of thing. So we can share that and then we'll grab a couple of links from you and put those into the show notes as well. But yeah, yeah, share and help everybody as they go on this adventure. We're starting to see more and more good resources for that kind of thing. And Mm -hmm. But it's good to know. It's good to be prepared if you're going to do remote work. I am curious how you are feeling about your new role here as the host of the Bike Shed. I think you've worn many hats in your time here, so I'm curious how you feel about you know the transition, how you feel about hosting a podcast, which you've done before. I've listened mm-hmm. to the Giant Robots episodes when, when you were hosting, co-hosting. Yeah, oh, that was a while ago, and those were a very different thing. I have a lot of feelings, perhaps unsurprisingly. <laughs> First and foremost, I think Derek and Sean had built something very special here. I want to do justice to that. I want to make sure that we're continuing both in the theme of the sort of show that they had produced, but also probably finding a slightly different voice and a slightly different you know, way to talk to people at ThoughtBot and bring that forward. I'm hopeful that people will enjoy listening and that we'll be able to you know, produce content that, that continues to be interesting to them. Derek and Sean had a really good dynamic, and yep. so I'm interested to see how well I can find that same sort of thing in a conversational and informative, you know, striking the right balance there. That said, I'm actually really excited about podcasts as a format because I think this is something that I I find thinking out loud pretty comfortable for me. <laughs> and in contrast, a while back, I worked on Upcase for an extended period. So I was producing weekly videos as well as the longer trails and just a lot of content. And I found that the level of preparation that I would put into a video was not necessarily commensurate with... Uh, it was a lot, basically, is what I'll yeah, say. I, I, the perfect is the enemy of the good was sort of what was going on there. And I was really putting a ton of effort into preparing and then the eventual post-production, writing up notes, et cetera, et cetera. And I think I'm excited to just be in a situation where we can talk, I can meet with some of my colleagues that I may not actually talk with that much and get to dig in a little bit on a particular technical topic or something that's been going on in their worlds. So yeah, I'm I'm a a little nervous. I want to make sure I'm uh, doing justice to the history of this show and and hopefully producing something that's good. But yeah, I'm super excited. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, 
I can understand. It, I love the the bike shed, and like, I'm also a listener of the bike shed. Yeah. So I'm like, oh no, now it's going to probably be a little less interesting, at least for me. But hopefully, it'll be uh, equally or you know similar interesting for everyone else in the world. Yeah, for sure. And I think you have to, like you said, you have to find your voice, and you mm-hmm. have to find your. It's not going to be the same, right? Mm-hmm. You can't try to copy them. Yeah, there's been a lot of uh, Twitter responses to Derek and Sean, which totally makes sense where people are just, you know, sort of mourning the loss of these two hosts that they've been, they've sort of shared a journey with Derek and Sean for, for sure. so long. And I'm like, I totally get that. It's great. All right. We're going to start sort of fresh, same idea, but here we go. But it's been interesting just seeing that, that outpouring and how much the show has affected people. And so I'm trying to not get into my own head about that and just be like, nope, I just show up each week and talk as well as I can. And with as many interesting people as I can about, you know, things that work for web developers. And that's the game. Yeah. For what it's worth, since I have the privilege of working with you, I've had many conversations and I think you'll do great. Wow. I think it'll be a good a good show, but not to add pressure. I work here because I listened to Derek mention it and mm-hmm. the bike shit that there was an opening. So <laughs> Yeah. And it's coincidentally it's, we are hiring in like, many of our locations. If you go to thoughtpot.com slash jobs, you can see many of the openings and it's a great place to work. Yes. So for sure. <laughs> So not to spend too much time talking about me and, and the show, let's uh, dig back into some of the things that we wanted to talk about today. Uh, in particular, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Elixir, which is a language that you know and love, uh, and that I actually have precious little experience with. <laughs> so I wanted to just kind of talk about it. What what draws you to it? What keeps you interested in it? And how do you feel about it relative sort of other things? So It is the language I love. I think that's kind of what drew me to Elixir first. I love Ruby. I think it's phenomenal. I mm-hmm. still love writing Rails and Ruby. And I think a lot of people switch to Elixir thinking, hey, look at this faster Ruby. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the wrong way to approach it. Mm-hmm. And at least that's not why I like it and why I stay. Sure, it's it's fast and what have you. But what I love about Elixir, one, it's it has some roots in the Ruby community in the sense that it's really friendly and it feels good to use. Mm-hmm. It has that sort of same feeling that has nothing to do with what you're programming, right? It's just how you program with it and yep. how it allows you to express yourself. Syntactically, it's very similar to Ruby, right? It was inspired it, yeah, by yeah, Ruby. And, and in a lot of ways yeah. it is. Although there's other, yeah, it, you know, it has like a macro system that's more mm-hmm. like Lisp and stuff like that. Which yep. is, so there's, there's several influences. But one of the things that I really love about it and that allows me to express myself in, in code in a really neat way that has nothing to do with Ruby, that has to do with Erlang, and I think actually Prologue, is the pattern matching. Mm-hmm. So like, I've worked with languages that have pattern matching, and they all feel, they don't feel the same to me. The Elixir one feels natural and exactly mm-hmm. how I would want to use it. So that's one of the things in terms of just the joy of coding with it. Right. But the other aspect that keeps me in Elixir is the concurrency. So like building concurrent systems or uh, you know concurrent applications it's just so, it feels so natural. It feels like the right fit in the language. I haven't delved too much into other languages and done complicated things with them in terms of concurrency. But every time I look at something else, it just doesn't feel like the right abstraction, if that makes sense. Like the actor model and how it's exposed through Elixir is phenomenal. And I, I just love that. And I love the ability to build fault tolerance systems and like all those things that mm-hmm. sound really complicated, Elixir makes so nice and simple that I just love that. So you talked about pattern matching, which I think I have dabbled in languages that have pattern matching. I love what it looks like in code. I think, again, it's it's a very expressive way to write. And whenever I'm writing Ruby particularly, I'm like, ah, oh, man, wish I had some pattern matching around here, or JavaScript as well, which yeah. are the two primary languages that I end up writing most of the time. But I'm interested, so Elixir doesn't have types per se. So mm-hmm. you're pattern matching on data then, I assume? Yeah, like data, t- it does have some types. 
Mm. I guess it has runtime types as opposed to compile time types. So like everything has a type in most languages, yeah, yeah, and exactly. that's known at runtime. And so it's doing dynamic dispatch within the functions based on the values that are passed in, rather than compile time. You have different annotations. Yeah, I mean you do have like Elixir does have type specs, so like you can annotate functions with types. Oh, interesting. And you run Dialyzer, which is this this program on it, and it'll it'll do a pretty good job. It's it's kind of different. It's not like a statically typed language mm -hmm. for sure. Or sorry, it's not like a, I forget the exact term, but like the Elm compiler. I mm -hmm. forget that, what type of type system that is. The Henley exact, Miller? Yeah, yeah, it's something the like that. The type inference algorithm exactly. that's used? Yeah, 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 exactly. So it's not like that. Okay. It does some success typing, and it, that just means something different. You know, and it, it's pretty good. I haven't delved too much into it. Mm. I've only, like, glanced at the paper and, like, haven't really done a whole bunch of stuff. But the types are, they're there, they're helpful. I do wish sometimes that it had a, a stronger type system mm -hmm. like elm does but at the same time some of the things that you can do are so flexible like the message passing the, you know, and i don't know how you would deal with that with types exactly i'm sure there's a way but i mean you might not be able to like dynamic runtime behavior is something that you're not going to be able to express as cleanly in most statically typed languages and there's trade-offs and you know different things but like I, I do find elm code to be a bit verbose in a lot of places yeah for sure so i, I think there's sort of a trade-off there and i see why folks don't necessarily reach for a type system right away. But going back to one of the other things that you talked about, the, the actor model and the concurrency, I'm wondering where that actually comes into play. Like what sort of applications are you building where you're taking advantage of the actor system? And I ask that mostly, like I work in Ruby and we don't really have a great concurrency story. Therefore, I don't use concurrency or I don't actively use concurrency that much. So I'm wondering where and how that's actually coming up in the applications that you're writing. I think it, the thing about Elixir for me is that it's everywhere. For example, you run the interactive Elixir shell thing, mm -hmm. and that's a process. That is an application, and the <laughs> terminology here is a little confusing because an Erlang application is a different thing. But the IEX is a project, and when it starts, it starts on a process, but it starts a supervision tree. Mm -hmm. So you have a, you know processes supervising other processes, yep. and your terminal is itself an Erlang process, right? not an operating system mm -hmm. process. So if you crash the shell, it'll restart itself right. as a supervisor will then, right? So you would do the same thing in Ruby. You wouldn't have a whole bunch of processes. You wouldn't be using concurrency. You wouldn't be using like message passing. You wouldn't be doing these things. But you're sort of building the same thing. There's just mm -hmm. two different ways. So I think in normal applications that we might build, you can still use it. It's just we've sort of found different tools for it. So mm -hmm. for example, side jobs or background tasks or anything like that you can use concurrency for, right? You can sort of spin up new processes and do those kind of things. But some of the really interesting things that you can do are more like OTP related. OTP is a Erlang library that really ships with Erlang. It's just part of the... Open telecom platform? Yes, that's right. Yeah, weirdly, because of the <laughs> history of, of Erlang. Erlang. Yeah, 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 with Ericsson and everything. What it allows you to do, for example, just as an example, I'm working on Ethereum implementation in Elixir. And one of the networking protocols... I'm going to try not to go dive too deep into this stuff, but what we're doing is we're spinning up a TCP port. It's listening for incoming connections. Mm -hmm. As soon as it gets a connection, it'll hand off that connection to a different process. That process will then sort of be the owner of the connection. That process can then handle all the interactions that does all the block syncing and everything mm -hmm. for the Ethereum uh, blockchain. So just even in that simple example, we have like two supervisors in that example. We have one supervisor that's checking the listening process. The listening process accepts connection to the TCP port. 
in that case, uh, if that listening process goes down, the supervisor will restart it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we have a separate supervisor that spawns a new process every time that listener accepts a connection and hands it off to that new process. So you start having these supervision trees. Right. Where, again, if you are writing something in Ruby, you might not need that or you might write it differently. Mm-hmm. But this just affords you that flexibility. Right. Because you have the tools and the primitives there, it lends towards that sort of supervisor tree decomposition yep. very naturally. And then uh, you're hinting at it a little bit, but the idea of the let it crash and the supervisor and all of that is a very distinct view of the world from what I'm used to in Ruby and other languages. Do you find that the applications that you're writing in Elixir are, are more robust as a result, that you have more confidence in them? Or is this just kind of a different way of thinking? Uh, I think it's a little bit of both. Like anything else, you can write applications that are not robust, right? And the I letter- can find a way to ruin <laughs> anything. Yes, absolutely. It's very easy. You know, I think you can take the letter crash mentality the wrong way. Like it can just be like, oh, let's just, you know, don't handle anything and yep. just let everything break. Similar to the move fast and break things in yeah, Facebook's right. history, where I think they've now changed that to never break the platform, but then do whatever you want on top of that. So they have a layer of like, let's keep this stable. And it seems like- And break other things. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, you know, you can can certainly take that the wrong way and go haywire, but I think it allows you to design your systems. It sort of adds another dimension to them that certainly adds complexity, but also adds resilience. So Mm -hmm. you can think about which parts of your application should live and die together. So mm. these supervision that trees... sounds profound, <laughs> if nothing else. <laughs> these supervision trees, you can sort of make sure that they, like if one process dies and they all should live together, the, the entire tree mm-hmm. goes down, but then it, the entire tree gets restarted. So it does make them more fault tolerant. It makes mm-hmm. them more resilient, but it has to be architected correctly. Right. It sounds like it, it gives you another layer at which to encode the decisions that you've made and correctness into the system, essentially. Like that idea of, well, if this thing's not working, this other thing should probably stop. Having primitives within the language and the framework and the and the platform that you're working on seems really nice to be able to handle that. Yeah. I guess when I, when I think of Elixir, I think of it more as like, it's a variant to Ruby, it's functional, it's got a very similar syntax, but it's other things. But I forget often that it has the foundational layer of Erlang and the OTP and some of the strong benefits that are there because that that powers a lot of how our phones work, it turns out. And it does an incredibly good job at that. And so the, yeah. the sort of hardened nature that that platform has, and then with a nicer syntax on top of that, I think of it as a, as a different Ruby is certainly like, I think that's the way I would naturally think of it. And I think that's the wrong way to think of it. I think it's a natural way that a lot of people have thought about it. I also think it's what attracted a lot of people maybe from the beginning. But I think the people that stay not because of that and they realize that it's a completely different thing. And so I think it was helpful at first because a lot of Ruby enthusiasts came and saw mm-hmm. Elixir and tested Elixir and tried Elixir. Uh, many stayed. But I think in the end, it's it's very, very different. So it's funny. I you know, I think when I first started trying Elixir, I was like, oh, this is great syntax. And it feels like typing Ruby or like mm-hmm. coding Ruby. But I don't actually think of it that way anymore at all. Right. <laughs> that was sort of the uh, training wheels to get you into it and the like comfortable paradigm that you were familiar with. But then you started to recognize the unique and, and novel yeah. aspects of it and run with those. Yeah, for sure. For sure, yeah. for sure. Cool. I don't know. I, uh, Elixir has sort of not bubbled up into my radar of things that like I want to spend time with. But like this conversation is actually interesting and making me think about it a little bit differently. Yeah. Which, if we're being honest, I didn't really need. There's too many things <laughs> on that list at this point. Yeah, so for sure. I was hoping you would just be like, I don't know, it's not that good. But no, there's some there's some really novel and interesting things, and it sounds like it's a it's one of the things like 
Haskell and Elm, there's really interesting things to talk about in the type system and how you model programs around types. And things like Lisp is another like category okay. of programming that I've actually similarly not spent much time with. And I've always thought, like, I should probably poke around with a Lisp Sunday. Although I'm worried that then I'll have to try Emacs, and that seems like a whole rabbit hole that I can't trust myself to go down. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah. But it seems like Erlang and the OTP and then Elixir as the you know nice way to interact with that is another paradigm within this world and an interesting one and something that could sort of inform all of the other programming that I do. So yeah, it's worth trying and it's worth trying in the right way, mm -hmm. like doing something where Elixir has a strong suit for right. you know. So you, yeah. you hinted a little bit at the current client project that you're on and the work that you're doing with Elixir right now. Uh, it has to do with the blockchain. You're <laughs> yes. using Ethereum, I believe you mentioned. And I'm going to be honest, and apparently this is the episode where I just say, I don't know about a lot of stuff. Can you tell me about it? <laughs> but you're working with the blockchain now. What What's that like? <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's completely different from what I'm used to. Mm -hmm. So uh, I started this project, I think, maybe three months ago. And... To be completely honest, I didn't really know much about the blockchain or Ethereum or anything really uh, related to these things. So I'll try to talk as though I were talking to myself three months ago. That sounds perfect. <laughs> That's the um, ideal way to describe a thing, I think. Yeah, I think it's interesting. So let me let me start there because I used to think it was kind of hype. Mm -hmm. I'm still in that place. So <laughs> yeah, no, maybe it, again, you can convince me to reevaluate my I position. Think it, it certainly can fit into that category. I'm sure much of it is hype. But I have also realized that there's sort of a set of problems that it could be really good to solve mm -hmm. with uh, with this kind of technology. And when you say this kind of technology, blockchain is sort of the unifying fundamental conceptual framework behind all of the different coins and networks and whatnot. Is that accurate? Yeah. So, you know, take all I say with a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's fairly accurate. If you think of, you know, Bitcoin and uh, Ethereum and like all the coins that come out of Ethereum, essentially underneath all that there is the blockchain like the blockchain is really just a way to do something decentralized mm -hmm. it's very similar to git right where it's you've got basically pointers and references in a directed acyclic graph sort of thing yeah so, encoding different information yeah, certainly the, the but yeah the way i think about it a little bit is if you can think of it of a first forget about the decentralization sort of aspect of it and think of why is it called a blockchain because that's something I never asked myself before mm -hmm. I started. And it really means you have a set of transactions and you grab a, a whole bunch of transactions to make sure they're valid. So A pays C, C pays D, D pays whatever, right? So mm -hmm. you, you have these transactions and you form a block with it. It means that block is has a set of valid transactions and that entire block has a set of uh, characteristics that you validate. Mm -hmm. That block is valid and you add it in the chain. And so mm -hmm. as, soon, as soon as you start having several blocks it becomes a blockchain or a chain of blocks and each block points to the previous one mm -hmm. right so now you have what you would consider a blockchain of course all that's like there's cryptography included and all and that's why it's cryptocurrencies and stuff like that mm -hmm. but the decentralized part comes in when if you have that and you're running in multiple computers and multiple nodes you come into the problem of how do we determine what is the true blockchain right mm -hmm. so you could have block A be the same across the network and then you have sort of two strands where you have blocks B, C, and D that claim to be the true blockchain right. and then you have blocks. They each point to A as their parent and say like I'm the next one. Right. How do you define which one's the correct one? And that's sort of where if you hear the, like there's a lot of terminology that gets mm -hmm. thrown around but like the consensus algorithm, right? Mm -hmm. It's like how do you determine what's the true blockchain across the network? And so that's where all the miners come in. Well the miners like 
also identify what's the next block. They're trying to create the next block. Mm-hmm. So they grab a whole bunch of transactions and they try to create the next block. But the mining is like the proof of work that is called. It's making it a little bit expensive to create that next block mm-hmm. so that you can figure out across the network what's the canonical block, is what it's called. What's a, what's a true chain, if that makes sense. So yeah, I mean, that's sort of the blockchain. <laughs> it's like not a great I feel like it's fine if we don't come to a complete and thorough summary of the blockchain yeah. on this episode of The Bike Shed. <laughs> but foundationally, we've got a blockchain. Yeah. And there's a distinct, like each different coin or network has its own blockchain. And there's only one per. Is that well, vaguely that's accurate? Not, no. So like... All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Bitcoin has its own. Yep. Right? So Bitcoin is just a cryptocurrency, from what I understand. I don't know much about Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Ethereum, I consider it a higher level of abstraction. Mm-hmm. So it has a general purpose blockchain, but it also has a Turing complete virtual machine built into it. So <laughs> you're nodding. I am nodding. <laughs> I don't know what else to do. So uh, we're going to so, keep, yeah. Yep. So the idea is that you can, for example, create currencies or coins into Ethereum and use that blockchain. So you no longer have to like, right? Bitcoin has its own blockchain. You no longer have to create a separate blockchain for each individual thing if you're using Ethereum. Gotcha. And where the virtual machine comes into play is you have this, this concept of smart contracts. You can create transactions that create a contract that can be executed at a later point in time. Mm-hmm. And that contract is part of the ledger, part of, part of the blockchain. And so the way you execute the contract is you run it on a virtual machine. So then you have like a programming language called Solidity in which you write code to execute in the virtual machine. And that's where I think this stuff is actually kind of interesting, is that with Ethereum, you have a whole set of problems that you can solve, maybe. Like it might be <laughs> actually applicable for like places where you don't have really good property rights, for example, mm-hmm. good property lo- uh, right laws and stuff like that. Maybe you can have like land titles or stuff like that, right? right. It, it becomes a decentralized there's no single authority so where we typically like in the u.s we have stable central government-based authority yeah but in places where there's less of that this can act as a decentralized and yet still acting as the like source of truth for who owns something who exactly it's it's in some ways tamper proof of course it's not it's Mm -hmm. not completely tamper proof right there's bugs there's like they're still trying to solve a whole bunch of problems right but it allows for some of that which is i think an interesting thing and so that's sort of where I don't believe the hype that everything should be on the blockchain now because <laughs> I think that's that's certainly something that happens. But I do think there's a set of problems that might be a good fit for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've sort of consistently heard that, that there's, there's a ton of interest. There's a ton of enthusiasm behind it. Uh, Ethereum particularly seems like it's one that has a novel and perhaps sort of the game-changing thing going on. But I've also yet to read the article or see the use case where I'm like, Oh yeah, definitively. That's okay. I get it now. Yeah. I am sold blockchain forever. I'm still looking because enough smart people on the internet are enthusiastic enough about this that I'm like, <laughs> I feel like I, I feel like I must be missing something. And I'm not even at the point that I'm like, this is definitively not a useful technology. Yeah. I've just yet to have that moment where I've been convinced in a deep way of like, oh, okay, got it. That makes sense to me. So I'm still looking for that dare to be blockchain <laughs> situation, but but I am intrigued and I'm kind of watching it from a distance and like, all right, I'll keep reading an article, a think piece once every month or so and see if it's the one that catches my attention. Yeah. At which point then again, a new thing gets to go into the stack of stuff that I have to learn and poke around with on nights and weekends or Fridays. But uh, yeah. yeah, I think that there's, there's quite a few problems they probably need to solve before it becomes that, I think. 
you know, there's all this like it, it takes way too much energy to, to yeah, mine like more energy than Iceland or some other weird nonsensical numbers that I right. keep hearing. So like that's all about the consensus algorithm, and mm-hmm. so there's alternate consensus algorithms, and like people are trying to do different things. Yep. That project- feels like something you've got to like fine tune and dial in because there needs to be some computational effort in order for the system to work but you don't want that to be that high, I would assume. Well, yeah, maybe. I mean, there's other, like, so, for example, the project I'm working on, it's a proof of authority. And what it really means is they have certain nodes that are the verifying nodes. And these nodes are essentially backed by someone who has revealed their identity, who has staked their identity, and they're uh, Hmm. notary public, like notaries from the United States. So it's sort of, you know, there's that issue of, well, then you're sort of centralizing it. The nodes that have the ability to verify the blocks Mm -hmm. are centralized in the United States. And you have that issue kind of, but it also processes blocks way faster. Hmm, that's so, interesting. So there's stuff like that that's coming And out. like the truly decentralized and anonymous stuff does have complicated social implications that that need to be thought about at a minimum. So the idea of like a semi-decentralized with some amount of verified known actors then building a web of trust and things like that. Like, okay, that yeah. I can see that. That's You're starting to speak my language now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting space. Yeah, and certainly there's there's a lot going on. So I would stay tuned. Stay tuned. I think, I think read, reading a blog post here and there is fine. Future know. Bike Shed episodes perhaps <laughs> will detail my descent into madness at the hand of the blockchain. Who knows? I would listen to that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> perhaps you'll be on it, Herman, and you can you can help me tell the truth of uh, what we're discovered. Are we, we going to be descending into madness together? That's the best way to go, I'd say. <laughs> I also meant to ask you, because I know the other day you and I were pairing, and we just commented on how long it had been since we'd sort of been doing a lot of rails. So what are you, what are you doing nowadays? I know you've been into a lot of GraphQL. Yeah, there's that. So there's a couple of different areas that I've sort of been focusing on my time. GraphQL is certainly one of them. I think figuring out how to do APIs in a sane way and, and frankly introduce that sort of abstraction layer. It feels like it's a, it was a missing piece of how we built applications, yeah. particularly with APIs. And I really, I've enjoyed basically all of my explorations in there and I want to just kind of keep going. Yeah, it's definitely a cool technology. I like yeah. it. Uh, I'll actually, I just found out I'll be speaking at the Boston React conference talking about GraphQL and React. Nice. So Congrats. That's, that's awesome. Cool. Yeah, that'll be end of September. Thank you. But so related to that, part of the whole thing is I'm trying to figure out a consistent set of technologies that can be my like, this is what I feel. This is how I feel we should build stuff. So I've been spending a lot of time with React on and off for the past few years. Uh, and I continue to think React's a pretty good idea. I don't think it's perfect, but it feels like a pragmatic, good choice. We can build things in it. There's so much existing technology that's been built in it. It has such a uh, such a strong position in the community that I'm like, all right, I, I can work with that. This this seems good. There's a lot of different ways that you can build React applications. So I've seen things that I'm like, I like that. That makes sense to me. I've seen things at the other end of the spectrum. But broadly, I think React is a is a good foundational technology, particularly when paired with GraphQL. Nice. Uh, and I think that's probably unsurprising because they came out of the same place. Uh, right. They were designed not necessarily in parallel, as far as I understand it, but very much they sort of grew up together in Facebook. And so they they mesh really well as technologies. The other thing that I've been sort of on a, a long winding journey is just finding a front end language or you know, I'll, I'll say language that I can have confidence in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what I mean by that is JavaScript is obviously the dominant force on the front end, but it is a complicated language with lots of idiosyncrasies. It's got a long history. It's, uh, you know, it's been a wild and crazy ride that got us to where JavaScript is today. And frankly, it's been growing in amazing ways. But I really want to find something that I can feel confident in, feel that if I'm working with a client, that I'll leave them with a code base that 
we can come back to and refactor later that we can maintain for the long term that we can build larger scale applications and teams around. And so with that, I've started to look at a, a whole variety of things, TypeScript, Elm, Reason, Flow as a different type annotation layer, so slightly different thing there, but Scala.js as another alternative. So there, there's a lot of different things that are in this space. Haskell actually has a similar one. The idea that everybody's trying to compile to JavaScript or actually WebAssembly, which is super interesting and I'd love to talk about in a future episode, <laughs> but I think that one, that one requires a deeper dive. Yeah. Um, but the idea of a sane language that can target the front end. Right now, my focus is on TypeScript. That's the one that I think has the best pragmatic access to JavaScript and that whole ecosystem yeah. interaction and, and comfort and sort of ergonomics of interacting with JavaScript, but also the building of a strong type system and excellent developer tooling and just sort of it's one of those like uh, like an RPG character where it's like alright you got a 10 on developer tooling you got a, a 7 on the type system that's pretty good it's it's good I can work with that uh, and then you know each of these different knobs and I'm yeah. searching between each of them and sort of trying them out on various small projects and trying to find the one that, that feels like the best optimization because at the end of the day none of them are going to be perfect that's yeah. definitively true but TypeScript is the one right now that feels like the best optimization. Do you like it above Elm for tooling? Like, what is? It? I'm just curious because Elm is really the only. Yes, I don't, I'm not a huge JavaScript fan, so Elm is great. Elm certainly has a stronger type system in terms of correctness guarantees and things like that. But TypeScript, they've really focused on developer tooling as a first class thing. Yeah, um, I was wondering. TypeScript okay. and VS Code both sort of similarly to what I was talking about with Facebook. <laughs> TypeScript and VS Code grew up together in Microsoft, and they are actually technologies that are are very well. Coupled. So VS Code is the editor that Microsoft has built. And as part of it, they have worked really hard on the TypeScript integration, which is actually then the foundation for how they're doing all sorts of other great stuff in it. But the experience of refactoring, of doing tab completion, of building projects, of seeing compile errors as you're typing, that whole experience is absolutely spectacular. Oh, it is. In VS Code. Nice. They also built it in such a way where other editors can take advantage of the same thing. So they... Oh, with uh, the language... What is it called? The language server protocol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, not to dig too deep into this, but I'm yeah. super excited about it. <laughs> now you got me talking about it. VS Code introduced the idea of a language server, which is each language would implement a server, which communicates over JSON RPC type interaction. And so TypeScript has an implementation of this language server. VS Code then has the complementary language client. So there's one language client on the VS Code side and one language server on the TypeScript side, and they can talk to each other. Neat. But now Scala, as a different language, could also build a language server. And VS Code can use the same client to talk to that. Oh, interesting. Similarly, Vim can build a language client and now talk to either of those language servers. Right. So it's taking what used to be a many-to-many -many relationship and sort of providing this common protocol as a choke point and saying like, all right, if everybody just speaks this common language, then everybody gets to benefit. And that like seems like reversing to the order of dependencies. Yeah, and it's fantastic. I've already started to play around with the TypeScript support in Vim, which is not as good as VS Code because they're sort of lagging behind and trying to catch up, but awesome. it shows incredible promise. And it shows like Vim still gets to be the best text editor in the world and get these IDE-like behaviors that are best in class and are sort of centralized. There's one great example for each language that's maintained by the, at this point, the core team of TypeScript manages that. The core team for Scala manages mm. theirs. So it's taking developer experience and, and elevating it up to that level and making it a first-class concern. 
So that's an aspect that I really love. TypeScript also has a really gradual on-ramp. So like if you go to Elm, you're right in Elm now. Congratulations. <laughs> Welcome to the world. And you need to understand the complexities of maybe types and of some types. And there, there's a lot more there. Whereas TypeScript, TypeScript is strictly a superset of JavaScript. Oh, so any JavaScript file, you can just rename it to TypeScript and ta-da, you have a TypeScript file. Uh, and you actually will get some type-related type inference and things going on such that it could even in that moment find issues with your code. That's cool. But then from there you can start doing type annotations and layering in additional knowledge that you have into that file as well as adding typings for like Lodash or React or Redux or all of those. There are community maintained type definitions for all of them. So now any library code that you're working with suddenly has types. Oh, you can add those even if it's not your library? Yes. So there's oh. a centralized repository, again, maintained by the TypeScript community, I would say. I think it's sort of core team, but it's also a community-maintained project. But if you're NPM installing React, you can also NPM install at types slash React. Oh, cool. And then you get the community-maintained, very robust type definitions that come with that, which is spectacular because that's, that's the thing that you want. So that's another example of where like TypeScript seems to be figuring this stuff out. And so you, you pull all that together, and now you've got some type, you've got a, a compilation process, you've got errors that are happening in your editor before you even go to the browser knowing that like, oh, that's a typo, oh, that function can't be called with a string, you have to call it with an object, right. et cetera, et cetera. It also allows for wider, more sweeping refactorings with more confidence, which is the thing that I care deeply about. Yeah. And then you can slowly ratchet up the strictness of the type system. So they have a bunch of different settings for like, uh, I'm, I'm new here, I just came from JavaScript, I may have written some stuff that's a bit squirrely, could we be gentle with our That's type inference and all of that? And so TypeScript has settings for welcome to the world. <laughs> We're going to be easy with the compilation process. A lot, and a lot more hand-holding. Right. And then slowly over time, you can ratchet those up. You can enable more of the strictness in TypeScript's type system. And you'll get a whole bunch of new warnings. You chase them down. You replace places where things have any as the type, which is basically a cop-out. And start to give it explicit types and then chase that down. So again, I think... In terms of pragmatic real-world usage, that's a story that I really like. As a team is trying out TypeScript, but they're all familiar with JavaScript, you can be like, all right, let's just rename all the files and see how that goes and get used to the idea of working within a compiler-driven workflow and, and things like that, and then slowly ratchet it up. That's pretty cool. I'm going to have to give it a try. Yeah, it's uh, it's nifty. I'm impressed with the work that the team's been doing. They just released version 3.0, actually, like two days ago, which is cool. They keep chipping new things, and... It's weird. Microsoft is doing amazing work. Uh, I mean, granted, they own GitHub, so, you know, there we have it. But, uh, yeah, I've been super impressed with Microsoft across VS Code, TypeScript, the acquisition of GitHub. They're they're doing things that all kind of make sense to me as a developer. So go Microsoft. (laughs) Yeah, I I didn't think we would say that. Yeah, Microsoft and Facebook are the makers of the technology that I'm using most strongly right now. So, So, yeah, that's that's sort of the stuff that's got my attention right now. And, uh, yeah. Cool. That's awesome. No, I, I definitely need to give TypeScript a shot then. Yeah. I already like GraphQL, so. Yeah. <laughs> and granted, I'm very new in my adventures into TypeScript, but each little step that I take further, I'm like, all right, I like what I'm seeing here. I haven't yet really gotten a sense for how powerful, expressive, and correct the type system is. And that's the other thing of like, if we're doing all this work, but it doesn't even catch bugs or doesn't even allow for more sweeping refactorings with that confidence like that's one of the things that matters the most to me about a type system yeah like in sure. elm you can go in and just take a hatchet to any piece of the code and be like, i'm going to fundamentally change this I data know. structure 
and then chase down the compiler warnings. Yeah, that experience is really great. I'm not sure how much that experience will map into TypeScript and its type system. So I'm really interested to see how that goes, and that's going to be like the final test for me. But I'm super enthused with everything that I've seen so far. Cool. So yeah, I think awesome. that is probably a good good point to wrap up. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Herman. Yeah, thank you so much for having me again. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 167. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the others, you can leave us a rating or review in iTunes or share it on Twitter. Either would be greatly appreciated. And if you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bikeshed on Twitter or hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed. We'll see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.